0: singing this morning, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 3. We begin our new series, Foundations of Faith, with this most important text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, specifically looking at verses 14 to 17. For context, I want to begin at verse ten. Second Timothy chapter three, reading verses ten through seventeen. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work i was captivated this week when i began Um, a new book that was commended to me. Uh, The title was called, or is called, The The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And the pastor who commended the book to me is older, wiser, experienced, and said, this is the most important book I've read in the last ten years other than the Bible. I was like, wow, (laughs) that's a pretty high word of praise. And when I read the opening line to the book, I realized that I don't know about the book, but at least in light of the topic, he may be right. The author describes his his need uh, to uh, address this issue of the modern self. Now, on the basis of a a phrase that he heard spoken with what he called uh, coherence and conviction. And here was the phrase. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He goes on to develop in the introduction that 20 years ago, that statement wouldn't have made sense. Like nobody would have actually thought that someone was speaking coherent language. But in our own culture, the majority of people, at least in the United States could look at a statement like that and in some way understand it and try to agree with it. If that seems ultra-radical to you, friends, reality check, it's where we live right now. I'm not normally a current events kind of preacher. I don't... I don't prepare my sermons looking at the headlines. But I couldn't help but notice this week that the Equality Act uh, passed uh, in the House and is being uh, transferred over to the Senate for deliberation. Uh, For those of you that aren't familiar, the Equality Act will be an amendment to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and basically will include the same uh, protections extended to the racial minorities to people who are Uh, transgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual, whatever the plus is and means. Don't worry, the point of the message isn't to write your legislators, although that would probably be wise. The point that I'm trying to make is we now have in the mainstream a formalized, Strategic attack upon some of the most foundational aspects of all of Scripture. He so said, Justin, what do you mean? Foundations, this is a, a social contemporary issue. No, it's foundations. See, our, our Bibles tell us that God created the world and He actually created us male and female, and He created us for a certain purpose, and that sin ruined that purpose, and that Christ actually rescues us from the aberrant purposes of sin and restores all things through Him. His Word speaks authoritatively to things like gender and sexuality, uh, just basic morals of what is right and what is wrong. And now it is actually coming down through legislation that the things that this book teaches are no longer right and wrong. This may have been one nation under God, but it is quickly no longer becoming one. The point is that this will introduce for us all kinds of attack, all kinds of hostility. It isn't just going to be something that you see on your social media profile. This is going to be the kind of thing that if legislation like this passes, um, pastors like myself will probably end up in prison sooner rather than later, and you may too. I mean, I'm not just talking about disagreement. Disagreement's always been there. What we are facing in these days are direct attacks on the foundations of our faith. And we need to be ready. Hence why we would even conduct a series like this. There are some things, friends, that, that we, as the people of God, must hold to. We, not just me, but we must hold to as the people of God, as, as non-optional, as, as unconditional, as, as things that, we, uh, are, that are absolutely essential. Especially as the temperature gets turned up on those who would say, yes, I follow God and I believe that He is the moral author of the universe. He determines what's right and what's wrong. And if if this sounds like alarmingly new to you, like, oh, I didn't realize it was that bad, I was blown away to discover this week that the Apostle Paul thought that the same thing was already happening back in his day 2,000 years ago. If you read 2 Timothy chapter 3 carefully, you're going to notice that he says in the first basically nine verses. In the last days, things will get worse and worse. And he's going to describe all kinds of just sins that are going to become normalized. I would encourage you to read this on your own time. But he's saying not only will this sin become normalized in the culture, but it will especially take the lead, or excuse me, be led by uh, teachers, uh, self-prescribed professors, uh, knowledgeable people who will reinforce this in the most radical of ways. So it isn't just the population in general, but there will be a group of people at the lead. Now normally I've read this with the understanding that These people are false teachers, and the way that I typically put it together is I think of a false teacher as somebody who is loosely associated with Christianity, somebody who would stand behind a pulpit on a Sunday. I've narrowed my definition of false teacher to that, but I'm now understanding, especially in light of the cultural milieu in which we find ourselves, that The teachers of our day normally don't stand in pulpits. There are plenty of false ones in positions just like this. But the teachers of this day you could find normally in universities and in colleges spread all across the United States of America. The teachers of this day that are prescribing this kind of doctrine are pretty popular on talk shows and radio and TV. And they write blogs and they sell lots and lots of books false teacher friend is not confined to churches the kind of behavior that you see here in second timothy chapter 3 is something that covers a multitude, anybody who is speaking authoritatively to a group of people prescribing certain kinds of actions that are contrary to God's word. And so now I understand myself better than ever to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is what Paul says, in light of that, he speaks to his young protege, Timothy, the guy who is supposed to hold the line, if you will, because Paul is about to die. And you say, look, I've been fighting this, now it's going to be your turn to fight it. And what you should like about Timothy, at least many of you, is he's not the most outgoing guy. He's he's a little introverted. He's a little shy. He doesn't come across as a bull in a china shop. And yet, he is the guy that is going to be entrusted with pushing the Jesus agenda forward despite the increasing hostility. And it's to a guy just like that, and to his church in Ephesus, that Paul writes, and listen to what he says. He says, basically, you've noted, Timothy, look in verses 10 to 11, like I've been consistent and faithful, and I've been steadfast in the truth by implication, and he says, you've also seen that I've had to pay the price for it. I've been persecuted for it. He says, I was persecuted in Lystra, you saw that, at Iconium, at Antioch, And basically, he's establishing a general principle that, hey, you know what? I, as one who holds to the the truth standard revealed by God, experiences persecution. But notice how in verse 12, he generalizes this. He, He goes from the specific to the general. He references his own life. He's a godly guy. He's experienced persecution for holding to the truth. And what does he say in verse 12? Indeed, all... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse. He says, it's good. Look, this is the way that it's going to work. He's been saying this through the record of history for now almost 2,000 years. People will get worse and worse. Society will get worse and worse. Uh, her teachers will get worse and worse. Her leaders will get worse and worse. And because of that, Godly people, people who are trying to uphold his ways, will experience more and more persecution, ostracization, critique, challenge. He's saying this is just a fact. But even though that's going to happen, even though such persecution is inevitable, there is no way around it. All who desire to live in this way will suffer persecution even though that's going to happen he says to timothy look at verse 13 or 14 but as for you even though it's going to get worse out there even though things are going uh, horribly as for you continue in what you have learned and firmly believed that is the point he says timothy it's going to get bad and your temptation will be to loosen up on the things that you have learned. To loosen up on the things that you held firm convictions about. Because you, you're going to want to avoid the persecution. Nobody enjoys the pain. And he's saying, look, even though you've been shy, even though you've been timid, you will, as things get worse, must, you must hold on more tightly than you ever have before. And that's the whole point. He says, there are certain things, Timothy, that you will need to cling to and never let go no matter how much it costs you. And by implication, anyone who follows in Timothy's teaching, the church and its leaders must continue to hold to these things, these firm convictions. And he gives some rationale for why you need to keep holding to these things, why you can't let these things go. And that's what we're going to tease out in the text today. Everybody in the room should be saying, like, yes, amen, I know there are certain convictions that we should be holding to, check. But how? Why? I mean, look, if we're actually going to be talking about, like, the potential of somebody getting thrown in jail or fined thousands of dollars or whatever... I mean, like, it, are, are we really going to be that, like, like, tight on things? Like, do we really need to hold on? And, and Paul is saying, look, you're going to hold on, you're going to hold on tight, and here's why. And what he gives us here, he says, basically, we are going to hold on to God's Word because of its power. Its power to save and its power to equip. We cannot let it go. Basically, to let the word of God go is to let go of salvation itself. And don't worry, I'll prove this from the text. And to let go of the capacity of that same book to transform. Salvation, transformation. Another way you can think of it, maybe these words resonate with you better. Scripture's power to repair and Scripture's power to rescue, to rescue and repair, or I just, to me, it it works most simply to talk about Scripture's power to save and Scripture's power to equip. He's saying don't let it go, because if you let it go, you're letting go of the power of salvation, and you're letting go of the power of transformation. Hold to the word. The focus here is indeed on the Scriptures. He he is talking generally about the things that he has firmly believed, the things that he has been taught. Uh, But he specifically has in mind what we in our own day would think of as the Bible. So the first thing that he needs to do is hold on to the Scriptures because of their power to save. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. How are you going to do this? Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, just this is an interesting little phrase. That the, the way that Paul is saying remain, stay, don't move away from the stuff that you know. Well, what is the stuff that he knows? Where well, he's going to ultimately describe it as that which is contained in the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. Um, it's an interesting little word. It's a technical word that normally refers to just the writings of the Old Testament. The writings of the Old Testament. You have to think uh, that the New Testament at this point isn't completed. I mean, like Paul is literally writing Second Timothy right now. But what was the the unadulterated, uncompromised standard of truth at the time was the Old Testament. That was the sacred writings. He's saying, you need to hold to that. He says, but not only hold to that, he says, I want you to also hold to the things that you have believed, uh, the things that I have taught you, the things that have been handed down to you. Now, Timothy had had some things handed down to him. Uh, he has a godly heritage. If you read his biography, if you will, try to like, put together what this guy's like, you find out that he grew up in a mixed home. Uh, his father was not a, a Christian, didn't follow Jesus in any way, shape, or form. He was a Gentile. But his mother was a godly woman, and so was his grandmother. And they had taught him from the earliest of ages uh, the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it's just an interesting little historical point for you. Most Jewish families began formally teaching their children the scriptures at five years old. (laughs) The word their childhood, we normally think of as like, oh, it must be somewhere between nine and twelve years old. The Greek word is the word that we would normally translate infancy. It's even used in the book of Luke to describe a fetus. (laughs) He's saying, like, from the earliest time that you could possibly imagine, you have been learning the Scriptures, and you need to hold to those things. He is including Old Testament revelation, which, by the way, friends, would include Genesis with this dictates for God's authority, gender, sexuality, marriage, and everything else that seems to be under attack this day. He says, hold to that. But not only hold to that, he says, hold to the things that you have learned also from me. You see that in his vernacular, the way that he uses these words. He says, the things you have learned, the things you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Whom is plural here. It's not just from who you learned it, like you learned it from your mom. He he implies that there were multiple sources from which he was receiving this instruction. And and from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Uh, the stuff that Timothy uh, believed and the stuff that he had learned wasn't just the Old Testament, friends. Let's be very clear about this. It wasn't just the Old Testament. When Paul is talking about the summary of doctrine that he had learned, the stuff that he had believed, he is talking about the Old Testament plus the revelation of Jesus and who he is. This will become even more clear in the remainder of the text. But if you want to see a little summary of what Paul has already said to Timothy, summarizing again what Timothy knew, what he learned, it wasn't just Old Testament. It also included the revelation of Jesus Christ. Flip back a couple chapters to chapter 1. Paul is going to make a similar statement. He's going to say, basically, I'm being persecuted. You need to like firm up because you are going to be persecuted. And he says, hold on to the stuff that you've learned, the things that you believe. And looking at verse 8, I want you to notice the stuff that Timothy knew, the things that he believed, the things that he can't let go of. Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord Nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What was entrusted to him? Well, clearly the Old Testament is included because he's talking about the sacred writings, but what is he also including? The gospel itself. The revelation that Jesus Christ has entered into humanity as God's son to live a righteous life for those who have failed to do so and to also redeem us from the curse of the law, its penalty that had been imposed upon all rebels. Jesus fixed that. He paid for that. He suffered, and he's saying, you know this. And he not only includes the death of Jesus, but he includes the resurrection of Jesus. He says, and he rose again, and because of that, we can have immortality. We will eternally live. He says, this is the stuff that you can't let go of. So he is at least including the Old Testament, and on top of that, he is including the Gospels. And we'll see more later about why he would include even more. But the point is, hold on. Hold on to this. This has been credible. You've seen uh, people pass this down to you. You've been able to watch them. This has been a credible message. And the main reason why you don't want to let this go, Timothy, the main reason why you are going to have to still hang on no matter what is because these holy scriptures, this sacred truth, is able to make you wise unto salvation. salvation is at stake this this is huge he's saying look God has revealed some very special stuff we talk about like being wise we normally think of somebody who's like really really smart normally the the Hebrew conception of wisdom is that of skill (laughs) it's not normally facts intellect it's normally skilled living Uh, in this case when he's talking about wisdom he's talking about the skill of salvation like if that was a skill if that was a human skill (laughs) he's saying that uh, the scriptures teach you how that happens the scriptures teach you how you could be wise to the point of being able to actually receive salvation from God and he's going to clarify by the way lest you think it's a human endeavor salvation through faith in Christ Jesus but the point is that it's been revealed uh, friends, I, I, I want to, when we talk about truth, and I, again, I can't go too deep down this rabbit trail today, but I will just say, when we talk about truth, in our current culture and climate, most people think that when we talk about truth, we're only talking about that which can be observed with our eyes, ears, noses, mouth, <laughs> and touch. They're, they're thinking of empirical truth. This is what the Bible calls, well, not the Bible, but theologians have summarized in the Bible as general truth revelation if you were in the theology class this morning you would have heard that God has revealed himself in some very general ways he created the world and it kind of makes sense to us that oh well somebody must have put this here my uh, son just the other day I thought this was fantastic uh, third grade and he said that uh, somebody was teaching about the big bang theory and he said that the first thing that came to his mind was well where did all those gases come from which I thought, oh hey, great, <laughs> they're getting the, the, yeah, it makes sense to a third grader, you know. There are certain things that have been revealed. Right? To have a creation, you have to have a creator, but what Paul is talking about here are not just observable facts. He's talking about revelation. Now You hear the word revelation, and some people get chills because they're thinking about like some kind of weird, ominous kind of thing, something very special. Well, Revelation is indeed very special, but let me just tell you what it means. It means to make something known that otherwise could not be known, to make something known that otherwise could not be known. I can look around at creation and learn a lot of stuff. There's a lot of knowledge that's available to me, but there are certain things that only God himself could have shown me or revealed to me. Uh, just concrete example. Uh, By by looking at me right now, there is no way for you to have known already that there is a pen in my pocket. But if I pull back my jacket, I have revealed this fact to you. There are certain things that you and I never would have known by looking until God revealed them to us. And it is exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy here. The way of salvation, you never would have known. You could look at the stars and you could like observe and dig around in the dirt and you could look in the annals of history and you would never really know how you could be saved from your sin and reconciled with God unless he showed it to you. And he's saying, listen, God has shown you something very important and you better not let it go. This is the wisdom of God unto salvation. You do not let go of the sacred scriptures and the gospel. You do not compromise on this because literally salvation is at stake. God has preserved the instruction on how you and I can be saved from our sin. And we cannot let it go. He says, hold on. Friends, I think that when it comes to things like authority and meaning and morality and and destiny, This is the stuff that has been revealed in this book, and we must look to it. We cannot compromise on this. If you're here today, you're you're not saved yet, or you don't even know what I mean when I talk about salvation. I understand we don't use three-syllable words very often in our culture. What I am referring to in salvation is rescue from God's wrath on account of your rebellion against him. Now, that's not good news. That's not gospel, the rebellion against him. But the good news is that even though we've all sinned against him, and we all know it, We feel that guilt. Sometimes we we stay awake at night wondering, why did we do that? We we look back at our life with all kinds of regrets. It's because we knew that we were out of line with what God himself would have wanted us to do. And yet, the good news is that, that God has decided to offer forgiveness and pardon by sending his own son into our human condition to fix that. How did he fix it? He obeyed where you failed. He died where you should have. He rose again, giving the hope of eternal life. That is great news. That is what God has revealed. And we don't want to let that go. That If you want to know more about that, friends, it is revealed in this Word, in God's Scriptures. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was performed in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then it was explained in the Epistles and Revelation. Well, the end story where it all heads up, you read that last book. But it all points to what Jesus has done. And we can't let it go. This is essential. But I would say to those of you who are like, Yes, I know I'm saved. I will not let go because the scriptures reveal my salvation. That's true. But notice Timothy. Timothy's already saved, right? He's writing to Timothy to hold on, not saying, hey, if you, don't let, you know, if you don't keep holding on to this, you may not be saved. He knows that Timothy is his son in Christ. He's not worried about whether or not Timothy's actually going to make it. He has two things in mind for Timothy. He says, hey, look, these are the scriptures are able to make you, that's interesting. He says you, wise unto salvation. Why does Timothy need to be wise unto salvation if he's already saved? Well, two things. One, he needs to be able to live out the implications of that salvation. We have been saved. That's called justification. We are being saved. That's called sanctification. The, 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 the presence or the, the power of sin is still kind of resonant in us. And the gospel is still rescuing us from those self-destructive sinful habits. And one day we will be saved insofar as the presence of sin will be fully and finally eliminated. So salvation is past, present, and future. There is a sense in which his sanctification and one day his glorification is being revealed further through this teaching. But I don't think that that's the main thing that Timothy's concerned about. When he says, I want you to hold on to this because it's the power of God unto salvation, I think he's actually thinking about Timothy as a pastor, Timothy as an evangelist. I mean, here's a guy where it seems like, pardon the phrase, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and he wants to know, how in the world am I going to make a difference? And he says, hold on to the Scriptures. This is the power of God to salvation. You want to know how to rescue all these people who seem to be plummeting off the cliff into an eternal hell? He says, continue to hold out the Scriptures. You want to see them saved, continue to proclaim the truth from this book about Jesus and what he has done. Do not let this go. Salvation is at stake. And so I would say to you as a church family, this may not be your vocation to stand up before a group of people and proclaim the word on a regular basis. But we all know that it is our responsibility to be telling others within our sphere of influence the truth about how to be saved. And are you concerned about them? You want to see them saved? You want to see them rescued? Sometimes we can feel that weight and it could crush us. And yet this reminds us that, hey, all you have to do is show them the Scriptures which are able to make them wise unto salvation. That is what brings about the change in their heart and life. It could be your kids. It could be your family members. It could be your co-workers. Friends, the Word of God has the power to do that saving that you could never do. I want to affirm this congregation to that. I think if you're visiting today, you're listening in, you're wondering what this place is about, this is something that I could honestly brag on about this church. This church believes that the Bible is what does the saving. We just had a members meeting this past Sunday night, and we spent time uh, praying in just little groups of two to three for our ministry of the gospel to others there was this quiet roar of prayer as people were calling out names of those that they had been sharing the Word of God with to see them saved. That's a normal thing around here. I'm glad that so many of you get it, (laughs) that this is ultimately what brings about the change in someone's heart or life. I just had this conversation, uh, even with Pastor Phil the other day, that there was somebody that I'm working with uh, to help this, this person understand the gospel. He admits that he's lost, and so I asked him, I said, should I use this resource or this resource? And the, this resource was a book, like a, a, just a book that you'd find on the wall back there, about the gospel. And the other resource was just the gospel of Mark. I had done that with somebody else, and with great success. And so I was thinking, i just ask him, he does this a lot, I'm like, hey, what do you think, should I use this book for this situation, or should I, I know this is going to sound crazy, should I use the Bible? <laughs> you can imagine the advice. That's great advice. Uh, you you want to you wanna have that kind of impact, you're concerned that you don't? Stop worrying about trying to close the deal, which I think what the last 60 years of personal evangelism has emphasized uh, why don't you just worry about presenting the scriptures? Say, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? I'd love to have a chance to just like read the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. You can read it on your own. We can get together and talk about it, or we can read it together. Whatever you just want to read the Bible. I mean, like, just read the Bible. Blew my mind a couple years ago. I saw a resource. I think we have it. Uh, what's it called, Phil? Is it How to Read the Bible with Others? It's some ridiculous title like that. And I'm thinking, I can't believe that some publisher somewhere had to tell us that it's a good idea to read the Bible with other people. And yet the thing has sold like hotcakes. I mean, like people are reading this like, oh, wow, what a great idea. (laughs) Clearly, we haven't been listening to 2 Timothy 3. Hold to the Scriptures. This is the power of God to salvation. There are other good resources out there, of course, that could help people understand the Scriptures or point people back to the Scriptures, but at the end of the day, we are looking to this to bring about salvation, and so we must hold on to the Scriptures because of their power to save. There's another reason why we need to hold to the Scriptures. We can't compromise. We can't let go, no matter how hard things may get, and that is because of their power to equip. They, the Scriptures have the power to save, but the Scriptures also have the power to equip. I'm taking that from verses 16 and 17. All right, notice it again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, and notice there, our word here, equipped for every good work. Notice that. All Scripture. The Greek word there is graphe, from which we get graph, writing. Uh, It's talking about all of the inspired writings of God have this unique authority. Now, when when Paul talks about Scripture, uh, what is he referring to? I'm going to get technical with you for about three and a half minutes, I think. So hang with me. Because some people would look at this and say, oh, well, uh, yeah, the scriptures that are inspired have the power and the authority, but not all scripture. Paul actually means all scripture. That not only includes the Old Testament, as I referenced earlier, and the Gospels, as I referenced earlier, but I think when we understand that some other passages of scripture, we're going to see, like, oh, he actually includes Acts, the Epistles, and Revelation as well. My brief explanation of this would be as follows. First, turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and look at verse 18. It says, notice this, for the scripture says. All right, We're letting the author here define his terms. So he's talking about whatever he's about to say, he's going to quote the scripture, which is the same word, graphe, that we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Scripture says what? Here Paul is talking about the reason why uh, pastors have a right to collect a salary, and he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and notice the next series of quotations, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul talks about the scripture, and yet he goes to two different passages. You want to know what's interesting about that? If you look at those little, if you have one of those Bibles that have all those little letters and stuff in it, they're actually useful. So if there's a, there's a letter by the one that says, you shall not, uh, you shall not muzzle an ox, in mine that's a bee. Well, you know what that does? It shows me that Paul is quoting there from Deuteronomy twenty one seventeen. Well, it's no big surprise that Paul is calling Scripture of Deuteronomy, because it's Old Testament, God's Word. He it, it calls the Old Testament Scripture. But notice the next one. Uh, for me, it's a little C, and it's in the center column. And it says, the laborer deserves his wages. Well, what's the C? Matthew 10.10, 10, Luke 10.7. 10, That's the New Testament. That's the Gospels. Paul here is quoting the Gospels, and he's calling it Scripture. No Jew in their right mind in the first century would have casually thrown around the word Scripture. And yet Paul says, Old Testament and New Testament, Scripture. Another example of this that you could look at is Second uh, Peter, chapter three, verse 16. Second Peter 3:16. If you want to flip over there, you can. I'll do it for us and just read uh, this passage. Peter, speaking here of Paul, he's speaking of Paul's writings, and he says this: "As he does in all his letters, when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> That's true. Uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other, what? Scriptures. Paul is considered to be Scripture. The Gospels are considered to be scripture. This shouldn't come as any surprise to us friends. I mean, when you look at Jesus statements in John 14:15 and 16, when he talks about the role that the Holy Spirit would have in their life, he says that the Spirit is going to enable you to recall all things that I've already taught you, the gospels. <laughs> he's going to also teach you the significance of further things, the epistles, and he's going to tell you what hasn't happened yet, Revelation. If you want to look at those passages, you could go to John 14:26. John 15, verses 26 to 27, and John 16, 13. My point is that Scripture, we we are talking about what would eventually be understood as the entire Bible. If you're saying, well, how did we get to this? Where did it get to this point? Well, you should have been in the seminar. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, That is a long discussion, friends, and I don't mind having it with you. I'm just going to ask you to do some work first so you could get a book like B.B. Warfield, Uh, on the inspiration of Scripture, and then you can figure that out and then come with me with any questions. I'd be happy to help. But we are talking about God's Word. All Scripture is inspired. It's inspired. Um, That is not the best word, frankly. I hate to say that. I remember I was teaching a guy personally. He, He wanted to be mentored by me. That was the word that he used, mentored. I always thought of discipled. He, he wanted a mentor, and and we're working through uh, the basics of the faith. And I'm trying to explain to him that I believe that the scriptures are inspired. And he was a musician. I mean, just think, Los Angeles musician. He was literally living out of his car, trying to get a job in film production. Um, and I saw him at Chick Fil A all the time. So that's where the relationship like first came together. And so I'm just explaining like what I thought was like a really basic word, inspired, and he's like, oh yeah, I know inspired. He says, I get inspired all the time. i was like, what do you mean you get inspired? You know, like I'm about to like debate him on this point. He's like, yeah, inspired is when you get a good idea. He says, so what you're saying here is that this, the scripture author's got some good ideas. Like, it is not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. <laughs> The, the Greek word is theonoustos, theos, God, pneuma, breath, wind, spirit. Uh, inspired is probably not the best word because it, it's a Latin word that actually means to breathe in. Uh, what would be better if we wanted to use the Latin, we would say expira, <laughs> breathe out. It is breathed out. It, it This isn't something that the guys got some great ideas in their minds and then they worked them out. God was breathing out his word through them. Some people would try to point to this and say, oh, well, this must mean that um, God was just speaking and they were like little um, mechanical dictators. You know, they were just writing down everything. No. God God is the ultimate author. They are the intermediate author. He spoke. He spoke and what they wrote aligned with what he wanted to communicate. There was still human authorship. The best quick example that I could give you of that is someone playing the same song with different instruments. I could play Jesus Loves Me with a trumpet. Well, I can't, but some people could play Jesus Loves Me with a trumpet and with a piano, and the trumpet's going to have its own sound, and the piano's going to have its own sound, but it's still the same melody, it's still the same line, it's still the same notes, And so also sometimes we see God communicating his one message through different authors, different instruments, and yet it is all coming together as that which he said, that which he wanted played. And so the Scriptures are inspired, they are breathed out by God. What we have here in these 66 books is actually God's revelation, what He was speaking, what He wanted us to know. And because of that, because it's actually God's Word and not just man's Word, because it's coming from the transcendent realm of heaven and not just the horizontal realm of men, it is authoritative, it does something. The Bible says, I mean the text says here that it actually is profitable. It is useful for some stuff. And what is it? It says it is useful for teaching and for correction. That's the first one, teaching and correction. These are the areas, friends, of doctrine. These are the areas of truth. These are the areas of thought. Teaching is what is right. Uh, the, The correction, if you will, or if we look at the actual word in our ESV, different translations put it different ways, reproof is what is wrong. You ever do that as a parent? You know, like, kids about to actually like stick something in the light socket. I saw that happen the other day. It wasn't one of my kids. Don't worry, I stopped it. But a normal parent sees that kid trying to stick that thing in the light socket, and what do they do? No. Well, maybe they don't do that in this culture anymore, but they used to say no. (laughs) That's reproof. You know, the scriptures actually say, yeah, here's the right things to think. And you know, sometimes they will slap your mind and say, nope, wrong way to think. Don't believe that. That's God's word, it does that. It tells you what's right, it tells you what's wrong. It is the arbiter of truth. But it's not only in the mental realm, if you will. Notice the next two. It is in the volitional realm, the way that we live. And he says that they also have the, the power or the authority, or they are sufficient to correct and to train in righteousness. Correction is, uh, I love the, the Greek word, the, the root is orthos. Remember like uh, an orthopedic mattress or an orthopedic surgeon. This is the idea of straightening something out and, and what he's saying here is it straightens us out, you know, we kind of come in crooked and it straightens out the way that we live, it conforms us to the divine standard, it corrects us where we're off, and it trains us in righteousness. I love the word train, it's a wonderful translation. When you think of training, what do you think of? I I think of typically athletics. I think of a coach who sits there and is working with that athlete, trying to make them better so that things that weren't at one point a habit eventually become so. I remember as a kid playing basketball and that guy was always on my back about keeping my elbow under my arm, you know, like underneath my hand and following through and flipping my wrist. And that something that would not normally happen. I started off shooting a basketball like this, eventually became something like this, and now I can't do it otherwise. That's training. It's been imparted into me. And scripture is that. It trains you. It, It makes things Right. It trains you in righteousness. This isn't just the thinking, friends. This is the living. I know sometimes we're so frustrated, we're like, what is my problem? (laughs) Why do I do these things? Why do I act this way? The Word. God's Word. It is the active ingredient that you need. It can change you. It can fix you. It can equip you. Not only you, but notice what it says in verse 17. That it does all this so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now, the man of God in the epistles is just a short phrase for the guy that normally does the preaching, the pastor. Uh, But this would, I think, very easily extend to anyone who is owned by God, (laughs) anyone who is trying to have spiritual impact in the lives of others. This is not just for the pastor. He's saying this to Timothy because he's a pastor. He's making it more pointed, more specific. But broadly speaking, the Scriptures not only equip the pastor, but they equip anyone, notice those words, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. They're almost synonyms. He's saying, look, you'll have everything you need to do the work that you need to do. You want to have impact in the lives of other people? You know this world is a mess and it needs cleaning up. You know that it is crooked and it needs to be made straight. Do you know particular individuals who seem way off in the way that they think or in the way that they live? Scripture is what can bring about the change. That is what can accomplish the equipping. And so he says, do not let it go. Don't let it go because if you let it go you no longer have the divine means of seeing people equipped. To give up the scriptures is to give up the divine equipping from God. Friend's going to ask you a question. If, if Scripture is in the business of changing things, making them better, outfitting people for good works, can I encourage you just to, to write down this question answer it in your own heart answer it in a small group or talk to some other person about it over lunch here's the question when was the last time the scriptures changed you when was the last time the scriptures changed you it could be belief or it could be behavior i did this exercise myself it was just it's a fun thing to do. Ended up writing 16 or 17 different things in less 6 or 7 months. I'm telling you friends, it does indeed have that kind of impact. And if not, I would ask you, have you already let it go? <laughs> Are you still holding on? Because the text says it's going to change you. It's going to equip you. This not only has individual application, but I think it's good for us to remember what this means for our church. It would be tempting in these days to think that the way that a church really grows, the way that a church is really protected is through programs and activities and buildings or whatever. Uh, an advertising campaign, uh, the social media strategy. Let's, let's just be reminded, I'm not thinking, nobody... Nobody's coming to me asking for more of that stuff. I'm just wanting to affirm something for a moment just to say that here we still believe that Scripture gets the job done. That's why I've been preaching for 55 minutes. (laughs) It's an explanation of the Word. Have you noticed a pattern, by the way, in these services, just kind of a FYI? These services are infused with Scripture. We sing Scripture here, we pray Scripture here, we read Scripture here, we hear Scripture here, and then a few times a month we picture Scripture through the ordinances. This is a Word-centered church. We're counting on this, and by the way, we not only count on it in the public gathering, but from the public gathering to the private meeting and everything in between. The small groups here, they aren't merely coffee and donuts, although I hope that stuff gets served from time to time. (laughs) They're centered around Scripture. They're centered around the conversation from the Sunday Sermon. You know what happens in other activities here, like what happened beforehand? It isn't just fellowships. It is actually teaching on the Word of God. We're teaching people right now in our classes how to use the Word to, to counsel one another and care for one another spiritually. We're using right now the word to teach people how to put their Bibles together in a class called theology. Uh, that that is what this church is about and so be it. That is exactly what I think in part that Paul is encouraging us to do. Just keep holding on to the scriptures to bring about the change that you think needs to take place. Don't let it go. Maybe I could summarize it this way. We need to stick to the script. We need to stick to the script. I was um, listening to a conversation this week on a podcast between a couple pastors. And uh, one of them was talking about the, the gathered worship of the church and how it should be informed by the word. And so the guy asked back the question, kind of playing devil's advocate. He's like, okay, it's easy for you to say that the, that the Word should inform what's going on in the church. He says, but there's so many things that the Word doesn't speak to. There's so many things that could be different. You know, like, do we need a more formal liturgical service or a more freestyle, relaxed service? I mean, there are all different kinds of things that somebody could say, well, the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly how this thing should go down. So how are you going to say that the Word actually informs our worship? And he says... I would treat it this way. He says, the word informs our worship in the same way that Shakespeare informs one of his plays. He says, anybody could could read Shakespeare in these days, and he's actually been translated into multiple languages. One guy even referenced a a Japanese presentation of As You Like It. That's that famous one where he says, all the world's a stage. And men and women are its players. What a classic line. Can you imagine that in Japanese? And yet it is still Shakespeare's line. Shakespeare doesn't tell people where they have to sit, where they have to stand. He doesn't mention how they have to dress. There are classical representations of Shakespeare, and there are modern representations of Shakespeare. But at the end of the day, people recognize, like, hmm, this guy's pretty smart about this kind of stuff. We want to present his stuff. I know the parallel doesn't fully capture the nuances of what we're saying here because the way that Shakespeare was inspired doesn't even hold a candle to God's authority over his creation, and yet I would say we try to stick to the script. Corporately speaking, we want his words as much as possible. And privately, interpersonally, we want to stick to his lines as well. It may be easier for us in in a world that is just doing free form, spontaneous, whatever they want. We're going to bump into them. They're going to think that we're weird and that we're crazy. And yet, I think this text is saying, no matter what, stick to the script god's holy word you say why 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 would we be so obsessed with what god has said i think this historic confession on the scripture sums it up well why we hold to the word because we believe that the holy bible was written by men divinely inspired We continue to hold to the word because we believe it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. We hold to the Bible because it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. We hold to God's word because it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions shall be tried. Friends, we hold to the word of God because it conveys God's way of rescue. We hold to the word of God because it conveys God's way of repair. It saves. It equips. And so I conclude with just these two very simple questions. Have you submitted to God's Word? Have you submitted to God's Word in its message of salvation? If you do not know, if that question is puzzling to you, please talk to a church member around you before you leave. This is imperative. God's Word discloses the way of salvation. Have you submitted to it? And you say, yeah, I have. Well, are you then, second, submitting to it? To be equipped. Friends, if if stuff wasn't coming to your mind when I was asking if the word has been changing you, I'm calling you compassionately to come back to clinging to God's word in ways of thinking intentionally about it when you gather here on Sundays and ways of exposing yourself to it, whether it be on your drive or before you actually get dressed for the day. uh, We must continue together, not just the pastor, but everybody to cling to God's word. It's the script. He's the author. We're the players. Let's pray. Father in heaven, fortify our allegiance to your truth this day. Indeed, things will grow worse and worse. And I'm not just being pessimistic, I'm just trying to be true to the text. and we will need to cling therefore all the more tightly may your spirit equip us for this and for those who have yet to submit themselves to this truth may today be the day of salvation We're to open their eyes to their need for Christ or compel them to turn from their sin and to trust in him alone and we ask all this in Jesus name amen